0: Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. My name is Preston Sprinkle. I'm the host for today's show. And on today's show, my uh, guest is Tish Harrison Warren. Uh, Tish Warren is a priest in the Anglican Church in North America. She's the author of an incredible book, uh, Liturgy of the Ordinary, Sacred Practices in Everyday Life, which, as we talked about in in the podcast, um, it, uh, it won the Christianity Today's Book Award, for 2018 which is a huge accomplishment i mean there's a lot of books that are up for you know winning that award and and uh tish's book won it in 2018 she also is the author of the forthcoming book um depending on when i release this it might actually have uh have already it might already be out it's called a uh, prayer in the night uh, for those who work watch or weep by inner um intervarsity press both of the books are by ivp so uh tish is um she's a, a fascinating uh individual super thoughtful super down to earth and um i just every time she speaks her, she just oozes wisdom and um and humor I, that's what i like she's a very well-rounded person as you'll see um in this conversation our our talk is it's kind of um uh, it's centered on her two books but her two books have uh Such interesting themes that we'll get into. And so we we go on some tangents and we kind of unpack some things related to those themes. We end the podcast. I really encourage you to listen all the way to the end. Or if you're on YouTube, watch all the way to the end. Um, Because towards the end, we talk about theodicy, the problem of evil. And her, her second book, um, Prayer in the Night, it deals with that. And it, it flows out of her own personal journey. And it's it's uh, I think the last, honestly, I feel like the last 10 or 15 minutes of our conversation was probably the most um, raw and real and, and meaningful. I mean, the whole thing was meaningful. But I mean, I, I um, we kind of started <laughs> opening up lots of cans of worms. So uh, I hope you enjoy this episode. I'm sure you will. Um, also, if you want to support the show... You can go to patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. This is a listener or watcher viewer supported uh, show, and you can find more info in the show notes. It's patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. And you can support the show for as little as five bucks a month. to get access to uh, lots of premium content in return and also get access to the Theology in the Raw community where we have lots of discussions and Q&As and giveaways and uh, lots of fun stuff. So uh, head over there if you want to support the show. Otherwise, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Tish, 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 <laughs> Tish Harrison Warren. Tish, welcome back to Theology in Raw. Prayer in the Night is your new book. Uh, Depending on when this podcast release, it might be available for pre-sale or for actual sale. It Comes out uh, uh, January twenty-sixth, you said, or
1: yeah, that's right. January twenty-sixth is the release date, so you can pre-order it now. I think today is what the fifth. Today's the fifth. Today's the fifth. Yeah, twelfth day of Christmas. So it's um, (laughs) which is why the Christmas tree is still up we keep it up till the seventh. Um, but, uh, so that's what, that's exactly three weeks. It comes out in exactly three weeks from today. So you can pre-order it or order it depending on whether or not it's when people listen to this podcast.
0: Your previous book, your first book, Liturgy of the Ordinary Sacred Practices in Everyday Life, won the Christianity Today 2018 Book of the Year Award. That's a, big deal did you expect that I mean of course you're going to say no but I would <laughs> I don't know I'll let you yeah. answer the question did you expect um, to win the book of the year award that's that's incredible
1: so Liturgy of the Ordinary has done um, far more than I could have ever expected but I mean um, it it got it got far more accolades than I was expecting far more readers it's, it, it is my first book mm-hmm. Should I say it was my first book or it is? I mean, I have a second book now, but it, yep. it's my first book. And, um, so, you know, I was a relatively unknown author. I was still new. I mean, I was, I wrote, I freelanced and wrote for various things, but, um, no one expected no one. I mean, the mm. publisher, me, my husband, my mother, no one expected it to do what it mm. did. And so, um, Yeah. So, uh, no is the answer. I didn't expect that. (laughs) I wanted you to Um, say, yeah, of
0: course. I mean, if I didn't get (laughs) back here, I would have like, what am I doing?
1: (laughs) Yeah. So no, with your first book, you, I I mean, I was just, so everything's so new. It's like, you go through a honeymoon period as a writer. It's just this exciting new, everything's new. And Um, you know, then just like a honeymoon period in a marriage, you go like, Mm -hmm. like that wears off and you have to figure out how to do this, you know, as a, when the, when the novelty of it wears off. Um, so yeah, I know it makes it actually hard to do a second book, um, because, uh, you know, my temptation is to go out on top. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I just talked to Esau Macaulay, um, is a good friend of mine and his book just won Christianity, the book of the year, uh, book of the year this year,
0: Did his it? book reading. Well- oh, and- congrats. So I had him on the podcast but- right when he released the book.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, so we're, we're like, um, really, really close friends. He's one of my best friends. We talk on the phone a lot. And, um, and, I was like, welcome to the club, man. Like your very first book, um, won lots of awards and this sold Well, like it's, um, it's not easy. And he's like, I know he's like, I you, you used to complain to me about this and I didn't understand. And now that I'm here, I'm like, man, I just like what, like you just, your second book, you know, there's like no way it's a sophomore album now. So
0: yeah. <laughs> what was it about your book that what's the itch that it scratched from your perspective as you look back on that? Like, why did it?
1: People have asked that too. I think it's, you know, astoundingly good writing. <laughs> I'm just kidding.
0: <laughs> um, Heavenly prose. Um, <laughs>
1: um, I mean, I don't know. Like I do, I do hope that I'm a good writer and the other books will also resonate with people. Um, i so I don't know, I mean, I really don't but i I think um man, I don't know why do these things happen yeah. like why why do some books land i think- I think there's a few there was some cultural stuff happening um i think well, it's widely applicable, like everybody yeah. Yeah. Um, it's not a book about that applies to one demographic, like everyone wakes up, everyone gets stuck in traffic, everyone um, goes to sleep at night and eats leftovers. And so um, it was something that a really wide audience... I mean, really, and I've Mm. heard from like urban 20-year-old hipsters and um, an Irish-Amish colony. Like, they all... Like, everyone has read it. Like, people... (sighs) and now it's in six languages and so yeah. i think um it's there's something like human about it right. um i also think you know it's funny because it came out in 2000 december 2016 so 4 years ago now and um and it was right after donald trump got elected and so there was i had the sense of like well no one's going to buy my book like nobody cares now it feels like half the world feels like the world is ending and 54% of America feels like the world is ending and the other percent that voted for Trump um, are mad at those 54% or, uh, you know, feel like the world is just beginning. So no, this little book is going to get lost and all that. But I actually think that when things feel like they're going so off the rails globally, like the sense of like, what does faithfulness look like? Uh in the molecular level, which is what the book Mm. is about. Like, how do I actually meet Jesus? Not just in these sort of like the global catastrophes that are playing out, but in my actual day became newly important to people, like people needing to sort of um, know how to seek God in their daily life. And I also just think books in general, this is not just my book, and I hope I'm not tooting my own horn here, but I think I can say as authors, the best books are books that show, not just tell. Mm. So my book is like, my book is, since the books come out, a lot of people have asked me to speak on it, and I do that. But it's actually sort of a terrible book to speak on in the sense that most many Christian books are an argument And the book is making an argument, but it would be difficult to say what argument my book is making. There's certainly themes like Mm -hmm. that daily life is a place to encounter God. The theme of formation is huge. The theme of liturgy is huge, obviously. Um, But... But there's not a linear argument. It's an exploration of one day of my life. Like the book is about one, begins in the morning and ends with me drifting to sleep. It's about one day. And so I think um, something about showing people, exploring ideas instead of... And I'm not against linear argument at all, but I do think people are drawn to the, the difference between a podcast and a book is that, um, there is something about a book that, that can be much more sort of poetic, um, symbolic, um, a long, a long exploration together that then empowers people to, to continue doing that in their daily life. Um, which would be different than a talk, mm-hmm. right? Or a mm-hmm. podcast, or maybe maybe not a podcast, but I don't know. So I'm saying like a linear presentation. Um, so that's part of it. I mean, the other thing that I can't explain is that um, the idea of liturgy has become mm-hmm. more important to people, folks. I think my book was part of that, but it was also, it, it's much broader than that. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's much broader than my book. And so like, I've told this story before, but When I, I, you know, pitched the book in 2014, because between the time you write the book and the book comes out, there's over a year. So there's a, it's a long period. And when I did that, it was with, um, it didn't have the exact same title, but it was similar. It had the word liturgy in it. And they said, we like the book idea, but you can't use the word liturgy in your title because evangelicals won't buy it. And... I said, okay, okay. So like a year later, when it was time to turn the book, I pitched them like 14 different title ideas, all without the word liturgy in it. And then they came back to me with a title that was almost identical to my original title. And I was like, but you said I couldn't have that. And they were like, well, we talked to the marketing team, and they're like younger and hipper than the editorial team. And they said that evangelicals, um, like liturgy now. And so I was like, (laughs) well, that works well for me. And so, um, there was something that, that happened in that time of evangelicals getting more interested in the broader, low, low, lowercase C Catholic tradition, like the long history and tradition of the church, um, that I think is still continuing. Um, but that my book, could be part of so i don't know i mean what, what this is, is complete speculation on my part if somebody has like the formula that made the book a success please let me know so that i can <laughs> do it again <laughs>
0: sometimes i have to yeah i mean i've been writing for almost 10 years now and it's that's the one thing that whenever i'm around somebody in the industry who's behind the scenes you know a, a publicist uh, a publisher uh, agent whatever i'm like what makes a book take off. And everybody says the same thing. Some books you can pre- kind of predict, but most of the time, the book you think is going to take off doesn't. The ones that you don't think are going to go anywhere absolutely explode. Um, uh, the Shack was one that I think barely made it in past the publishers or whatever. Like, why did The Shack take off? And people are still wondering maybe why. Um, otherwise, <laughs> uh, um, The Eldritch, uh, Wild at Heart, I heard, was... And if you don't know, the, I mean, I mean, pe- people criticize the book and I, I'm not like for or against it, but I, I it took off. But they said that was word of mouth. Like it sold hardly anything the first year I heard. But just everybody that bought it told two people about it. It just slowly, slowly. And then it became, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of copies it sold. But yeah, there's no formula. Real. I mean, of course, there's co- so Esau's book. And that one's a little it's like, oh, of course. I mean, here, right smack dab. In the midst of all these racial tensions and conversations, and to get a real sane, wise voice like yeah, Esau to speak. Yeah, his book
1: hit at the exact right moment. Yeah, right? so
0: that one's you know a little more. I don't want to say predictable, but um, yeah, some of you know I, I love. I love. I was gonna say the title is so ba. Yeah, Liturgy of the Ordinary. I mean, That's such a great. Title: why, why do you think it is that younger people are now, I want to say, in the last five or six years, becoming more attracted to lowercase C Catholic traditions and liturgy and so on? Do you do you have any thoughts on on that? Like, why there's this kind of resurgence of the ancient?
1: <laughs> yeah, I really do. Um, so, um, I think there's good things that are motivating this and slightly less good. Um, So I don't want to make it like this is an, you know, an adulterated revival in the church or something, but I will start with the good. Like, I think um, some of it is that as, um, I think for a long time, in evangelicalism, I'm going to speak to sort of white evangelicalism specifically, like your typical kind of mm-hmm. stereotypical evangelical church. But, um, there's been a lot of it that, um, is, um, a, a little, um, parasitical is too much of a, of a negative word, but, but, um, but some less negative word than parasitical that's reliant on a whole on a host culture. Um, so it's gotten a lot of its forms from things like CEO, like a, like a business, right? Mm-hmm. Like a, a, megachurch is like generally like an entertainment, um, uh, model or, uh, with a, with a CEO pastor. Right. Um, um, so, so corporate models or, um, models of, um, like, a, um, a TED Talk with a band, kind of, um, and, um, a- and some, I mean, I guess there's been some sort of, like, response to that, um, which is more kind of, whatever, I was, like, on the edges of kind of the emergent church movement and that whole thing, but that still can just be, like, another subculture model, like... Yeah we're doing like an independent coffee house kind of Mm -hmm. vibe. Um, So um, I think that works if people have like a general sense that church is like sort of worth their time or that it's a place you might go to like figure out how to live better or um, have, you know, three steps to a happy marriage or like whatever it, whatever it is. But as Christian, as like the last sad gasp of Christian culture kind of fades as that's dying, um, I think, um, young people are either leaving the faith mm-hmm. to altogether, um, because it, it's not giving them, they don't, it's not, there's no cash value for it in their life. There's a, there's, a, they don't, they don't need it. We don't, we no longer like need to go to church because that's what all your neighbors do. And that's the uh, whatever American thing to do. And so, um, so those who stay, I think, know we almost intuitively know that we need, um, deep, deep roots that we're just mm-hmm. not going to be able to weather the, storm of (laughs) of modernity and post-modernity and um i don't even know if post-modernity actually exists i think i think it it, it's just modernity continued so modernity with
0: um, (laughs) i'm gonna come back to that but keep going
1: (laughs) but, but we're not going to kind of be able to weather the questions and and doubts and and um life in contemporary America. Um, and, and the difficulties of that and the marginalization of that without being rooted in something very lasting and real, and that is, um, not a fad and that can support the weight of our souls. And that is, um, a, a, some, a bigger room that we can walk in rather than something that we sort of only have to kind of gin up in ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think there is a sense of, of going back to, um, the Christian tradition, um, both to, to root ourselves theologically, um, but also, that these forms, there's an understanding of, of that they shape us. I, th- mm-hmm. I, I think that's part of it. I think there's a draw to being formed by something older and more, um, enduring than ourselves mm-hmm. or our own assumptions or our own culture. Um, because liturgy by nature is, is cross cold. It's, it's, it's transcendent. it's cross cultural. It comes from a different culture. I mean, we reread we things from, The third century and John Chrysostom's prayer in our liturgy, like that, is from a different Mm -hmm. culture. Um, And then I also think there's beauty. I think we're drawn to beauty. I think that um, we're drawn to the aesthetics of worship in a way that um, that there was a a time where people thought, well, let's make worship look like just like the mall or just like um, Starbucks, Mm -hmm. and people that works unless people are like, well, then why the hell don't I just spend my Sunday morning on Starbucks or the mall? <laughs> right. And so I think there's yeah. something about um, sacredness um, and weirdness and ancientness that's sort of um, – draws younger folks mm-hmm. um but i also i think it's more than just aesthetics i really think that as things um as people suffer as you face suffering um hmm. the kind of evangelical like rah rah go jesus like figure out like come have deeper and deeper like emotional experiences of faith, whatever that looks like, just starts to it doesn't work anymore, and you have to go to things that um, can sustain your soul over a lifetime of faith. And the things that can sustain your soul over a lifetime of faith are things that have sustained other people's soul for their lifetimes of faith for thousands of years, right? So I think I think it's a it's a desire for rootedness
0: hmm. and like, what I don't you, know. What like, do you what think you, of that? No, like what you no, it's, I, <laughs> that, I it, it was a genuine question too. I think it, Sometimes I, I throw think it's
1: all good. I, I could get into sort of, I think there can be a little bit of a dark side to this. Um, and I can get into that too, but I, but that's the good, that's the positive draw, mm-hmm. I think.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I like what you said at the end, just that almost like, um, and i and i I get nervous using categories I don't wanna broad brush churches, but for lack of better terms, the kind of seeker movement well you you said the rah rah you know, but like the that real kind of high energy and less on the maybe depth and rootedness and meaningfulness like that and this is an inexact analogy, but like eating snicker bars for you know um for food you know it's like man it gives you energy it's it's super enjoyable life's amazing but after you know a few days couple weeks you know when you start some health problems start creeping in and you know late afternoon crashes and you start seeing this is this doesn't have the this is this tastes way better than a salad but there's something about a salad that's gonna sustain me more through the storms and and in a similar way these more (laughs) more thinner um um, brands of church, the church experience, again, they can work for a time, but, um, after a while, it just, it's, it's not when you lose a child to cancer, when, when, you know, your, your wife leaves you, you find out that your spouse is gay after 30 years of, you know, that people go through, um, or if you're one of the 20% of women in particular who have been sexually abused and have never had a context to work through it, like an awesome worship set isn't going to, Heal that trauma, you know well, i I don't want to diminish the spirit's work in whatever form, but yeah i i do anyway, I just want to agree i I do think that there is a more a stronger movement, especially among a younger generation, for more meaningfulness, and they they have hard questions that they're asking and and I think they want more authentic humble wise wise guidance um i know my my kid- my kids are my kids, and people say well you're you know you can't compare your kids to other people. Our, our, my kids—they can't even go to like a youth group. <laughs> They've tried so many, and they're mm-hmm. like, "I don't like." Can we talk about something deep and meaningful? And I've got hard questions, and I don't need a cool youth pastor to be my friend. I need a, a leader to disciple me, you know, in really um, hard questions, you know, that my dad can't answer, you know, <laughs> and like so it, they're just like they—they <laughs> they see right through it. They—they they have such a hard time with that. But I, I think that's pro. I don't know. I think that's actually more common than people realize. Um, well, is that part of your journey? Because you weren't raised Anglican, right? What was your? No, church? no, your right. No, no,
1: So I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church okay. in Texas, um, which is its whole own thing. There's like Texas Baptist is a deal, that's a culture. Um, I was not. In like a, it's difficult for me to explain my upbringing to people who weren't in it because it, my parents were not at all fundamentalists. Like, mm-hmm. we, they drank alcohol. I was around cussing. They, my, at one point in college, my mom told me I need to have more boyfriends and drink more. So like, it was not. And she was sort of kidding, but I was a very serious, very serious about my faith kid, and she like was genuinely worried about me, I think that it was i was taking this i was taking Christianity like a little too far um so i um so yeah i like I didn't kiss dating goodbye ever um that wouldn't have been something that my parent my parents would have been very confused if a boy asked them to court me they'd be like, What the hell is wrong with that kid Did so like um My dad would just be like, just ask her to the movies if you want. I don't, I don't know what you're asking me, son. (laughs) Um, so, um, but that said, I was around, it was like a conservative Baptist church, right? Like God and country and Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. So it was kind of around, I was around that. Um, but I grew up in Austin also. So I was around that, but I was also around, I mean, I also, you know, have memories of like walking on the drag and buying poetry from hippies and, um, like, uh, my friends smoking pot and that. So, um, I was in, but I, um, c- had a sort of conversion experience at, at a young, pretty 10 or 11. And, um, it took, I mean, it was, it was very significant to me and, um, I had a, really visceral, profound experience of, of God's presence. Um, this would be too long of a story to tell, but, but, um, my faith, so my faith was very real to me as a kid. And, um, but I was in this sort of like my, my school was was pretty conservative Christian school, but my peer group and, and life was sort of, um, I was I was really into theater, so I was actually I was in the movie Dazed and Confused, um when I was uh, a kid. Ca- I've never said that on a podcast. This Wait, is you were
0: like, in Dazed and Confused?
1: I, this is actually the first time I've ever said this publicly. That's funny, but My respect is, is for you news. just
0: like double. <laughs> all right, all right. Yeah, all I right. was in it. I was in
1: it. I was a freshman girl in that movie. So um Wait, like an extra? So or did you I have say, any
0: speaking parts or no
1: i I didn't have a speaking part i didn't have a speaking part i was i was an extra in the scene where the, the last day of school when everyone runs out and they they have paddles they're coming after the lead characters with with paddles um or maybe it's the first day of school i don't remember and uh i was in bell bottoms and ran out of the school like a hundred times. I mean, like the, it was a the, they had it. The, it was a small cast because it was a low budget movie, and so they just filmed the same groups from so, all different angles. So it took like nine hours to do the scene. We just did it over and over again. But I, yeah, and so they'd call cut, and then you know, like everybody would smoke everything during the break, right? <laughs> and so, but I didn't. Like I was, I was in different. I was in cro- conflicting cross currents of culture. Okay. Like there was, I. Right, and it makes um, total
0: sense. Yeah, so, you're, you're you're in yeah. a progressive environment. You yourself aren't fundamentalist, but you're in also a conservative church context, and you had a family that's very broadly, I mean, modern, like sanely evangelical, for lack of better terms. Um, when wh- when did the Anglican thing happen?
1: Yeah, much later. So I actually went in college, started going to a PCA church, and um, kind of became reformed. Like I didn't have that. I didn't know what that would have, in in high school, I wouldn't have known what that term meant, but, um, but, but was exposed to sort of like doctrines of grace and, um, mostly the, mostly grace that I I grew up, I knew Jesus, but I had no concept of, of grace and of myself as a sinner. I was a really good kid, like an obedient kid. So the notion of myself as a sinner was more theoretical than real and sort of through college and making like screwing up and seeing my own selfishness in a lot of ways, I ended up going to this Presbyterian church in, in the PCA and was um, in the PCA for like 12 years, something like that. And um, and then really it was after seminary. Um sort of accidentally I ended up becoming Anglican. We didn't mean to. We 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 were in <laughs> we were we were back in Austin where I was from just for the, kind of like a gap year between seminary and when my husband was applying for PhD programs. And so we just knew we had to find a church quickly because we were there a short time. And so we um couldn't find a PCA church for various reasons. Um And so there was this little Episcopal church that was um, just like a very small, sweet, evangelical Episcopal church. And we started going, saying like, this is going to be a summer fling for us. We're only going, we were, I mean, we were there for a year, but we were like, this is, we're not staying, we're not going to become Anglican or, or this is just like a new experience. Well, anyway, I write about this in the book, but every week that I went, I I wept. I just cried through the service. <laughs> mm. Because it was so needed. It was like water to wow. my it was well, actually what I told my husband in the car every week was like it's like chamomile tea. Like it just felt like so comforting and nourishing and like if you've ever had like strep throat and drank like chamomile tea, it's just this like needed thing. And I felt like um we had been and when we we lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts before this, right between, literally right between Harvard and MIT, we went to a brilliant church, but the Presbyterian church can be so, so heady Mm -hmm. and doctrinal. I tend to be heady and doctrinal. My husband has a PhD now, and we were in seminary. So we were hmm. we were just soaking up like the very, very best ideas of, of the faith. We were soaking up doctrine. We were reading all the time. We were learning Greek and Hebrew. And all of that was great, especially because both of us were from a little bit of like um, anti-intellectual Christian backgrounds. Yeah. And so um, being like unsatisfied with that, it was like very healing to find this like theological ferment happening, but it got, after years of that and being married to each other, we, we, um, first of all, had a faith that kind of only used our brains Mm -hmm. um, and was really disconnected from our bodies and that sort of Mm -hmm. thing. But also we, I, I just had no notion of formation. And Mm -hmm. so we were like, knew our stuff. Like we were like theologically informed And fighting like cats and dogs with each other in our marriage. Like it was it did not it wasn't like resulting in sanctification, humility, kindness. Like that it wasn't that was not happening. And so we so the so uh the rootedness that I talked about and the use of my body and um being just like, I was really exhausted at the time. And so being able to sort of just throw myself in the liturgy and not have to get to a certain like Mm. cognitive place or of, of depth of belief or emotional place was incredibly liberating for me. Um, so really the, I like formation coming in my life was so transformative and the liturgy itself, we just completely fell in love with. It was Um, we just, we just totally fell in love. So at the end of that, we actually moved to Nashville for my husband to go to Vanderbilt and we tried to go back and we just couldn't do it. We just, we couldn't like, we, we couldn't do it. So we ended up just Anglican and then eventually got ordained and I'm an Anglican priest and so is he.
0: So Oh, he is too? Yeah. Two eight okay.
1: Yeah, wow. yeah. Wait, sa- kids same same
0: church? Same church? Two, two
1: that... double preachers kids, <laughs> so pray for them. Like <laughs> And to the yeah, uh, very yeah,
0: intellectual, we're... that's that's pretty rare. Um Yeah, so you yeah, guys are I
1: mean, he's way more intellectual than me, but
0: yeah. Um I want to transition to uh, prayer in the night because that, that we started 35 minutes ago. I was trying to <laughs> jump My goal was to start with your newest <laughs> book. And work our way backwards. <laughs> that's gone. But let's jump. It's really
1: important to me. Yeah. That you know, I, I feel like IVP wants me to prioritize telling you I was in Dazed and Confused when I was fourteen over my newest book that I want people to read. I am still, I
0: mean, more impressed with your cameo in Dazed and Confused than your writing. No, <laughs> did you did you actually meet Matthew McConaughey?
1: No, I never met him. Never met no. him.
0: Well, back I've then he wasn't. have been around him. What's that?
1: I've been around him because I'm from Austin and he's from Austin. Oh, okay. So I've been in restaurants where he was like next to me and he, his kid went to school with my nephew. So oh, I've wow. like okay. sat by him in um, school assemblies and stuff, but I, I don't, I I haven't met yeah. Matthew McConaughey.
0: I, I I mean I don't I'm yeah. not I not i do not follow Hollywood stars too much. At, well, too much. My kids would say probably not at all. But he's one that always, I always I've listened to a few podcasts that he's been on, and maybe just the characters that he usually portrays. He seems like a different kind of Holly. He just seems a little more real. I don't know if that's true or not, but um, I don't know. He's I'm a fan. Very Texan. Very Texan.
1: Super Texan. Yeah. Yeah.
0: The accent's very early.
1: Austin <laughs> okay, pr-
0: <laughs> yeah. prayer in the night for those who know. work or watch or weep. Give us the L I want you to do a couple minute overview of what this book is all about. And then I'm sure that'll take us several different directions.
1: Yeah. So this book, my second book, um, came out of, um, a few experiences in my life coming together. um, One was the year 2017 was just difficult for me. We moved across the country from Austin to Pittsburgh in January. And a week later, um, my father passed away suddenly back in Texas. And then I found out the day after his funeral. So I I had a plane ticket booked to go back home for his birthday. And, um, I used it for his funeral and I, um, I spoke at his funeral and the day after I found out I was pregnant, um, and which was joyful for us. We had wanted a third child, and uh, and three weeks later I miscarried, and then, uh, surprisingly, like a complete fluke, got uh, was pregnant again, and um, that was a long hard. Um, pregnancy and I had to be on bed rest for part of it. And, um, and then that July second trimester, we lost our son. Um, so it was like six months of just a really rough year. Um, not there's a, I've said this several times, but there's a whole sort of genre of like Christian, um, response to, to truly catastrophic tragedy in some sense. I mean, this was very painful, but it was also this. It was just kind of a normal pain in the sense that a lot of us lose parents. All all of us, if we live long enough, we'll lose our parents. A lot of us move. A lot of us have miscarriages. It's one in four pregnancies in a miscarriage. So wow. this is not a book about um, this really hard thing I went through. It's not really actually about that at all. It's a about when I went through that, a few things happened. Number one, I sort of felt like I didn't know how to pray anymore. I, um, felt like there was so many questions and I was so tired and I didn't know how to trust God. Hmm. Um, and questions of sort of how do you well, the way I say it in the book is if we cannot trust God to keep bad things from happening to us, which mm. we cannot, um, then how do we trust God at all? And I didn't know the answer. I didn't, I started the book, not knowing how to answer that question. Um, and that was a, a theological question, but it was a very practical question too. Of, of, if I, if I, how do I continue in this faith in Jesus when I don't, know how to when I I can't be reliant on my own energy or my own, um, ardent faith, which was because I was full of doubt. Um, and I didn't know how to talk to God Mm. in the middle of that. Also night became really hard for me. I could sort of keep going during the day, but, um, Mm. but, um, I would have anxiety at night or the stillness of night was really overwhelming to me. And so I would fill it up with um, Netflix, a lot of Netflix, a lot of Twitter, a lot of reading political articles. Um, this was 2017. So a lot was happening in our world at the time. Um, and I would just, I, I night became this sort of, um, difficult, fearful thing for me that, um, and so, um, for me that like all of that sort of hinged on the notion of vulnerability, like why does God allow us to remain vulnerable, to be vulnerable? Night is a really vulnerable time. Um, and so I, um, started, I, I like really through a counselor, um, came back to the practice of Compline, which is, um, an Anglican office of prayer at night. It's the final prayers of the night. A prayer office is like a prayer service that we do. And it's, um, and so I started doing Compline. I started praying Compline. And so, um, the book isn't about Compline per se. In other words, it's not like, um, you should pray Compline. Here's why, here's, here's what Compline is, but it takes one prayer out of Compline. Um, that it's um, I'll just say it is mean, the keep watch dear Lord with those who work or watch or weep this night and give your angels charge over those who sleep tend the sick Lord Christ, give rest to the weary, bless the dying, soothe the suffering, pity the afflicted, shield the joyous, all for your love's sake. Amen. And so I, each chapter in the book is a meditation on each phrase of that prayer And I use the prayer as a way to enter into questions about theodicy, like why, how can God be all good and all powerful and bad things like regularly happen in the world, Mm -hmm. but also about vulnerability. How, why does God allow us to continue to be vulnerable? How do we meet God in our vulnerability? How do we deal with living in a world where we are so prone to harm and wounding. Um, And, and, and the, so the book is wrestling with that. And in the context of darkness and light, um, where do we see God's light in the darkness? Where does God need us in the darkness? And then finally sort of the, the whole culmination of the book is in the love of God. Like where is the love of God in the dark Mm -hmm. and how do we continue to, pray to a God that we h- hope and need to love us when things are dark and we're not sure and we're full of doubt. So those that's um, what the book is about. So it's about um, my own struggle with where God is in the midst of um, loss and woundedness and fear of the future. And, um, how do we keep praying when Mm -hmm. faith feels hard and distant and, um, when we can't settle for sort of trite answers, Mm -hmm. how do we continue in the faith? So, yeah, it's, I mean, I guess it kind of gets back to this idea of rootedness that Mm -hmm. sort of has kept coming up in this podcast.
0: Yeah. What, what is your past? First of all, that's beautiful and i love that it's rooted in your own story i mean very much like your first book it's 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 embodied it's embodied not that not to promote my own book embodied um but it's it's embodied, <laughs> it's, it's not what i meant it's, it's embodied theology it's a uh, lived theology it's not just speaking from a distance and i think that's what makes it so powerful like your first book um w- what is your pastoral response to theodicy um yeah. yeah yeah i mean somebody comes to you huge tragedy where is God in this like how how do you and I, you know I know, you and I both know the theological options here, or whatever, but like pastorally how do you right. how do you respond well, the
1: first thing I would do is give them my book <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding <laughs> I'm just kidding, but it is funny because it's like you know i i I started this book, I've told this story other places so but if. I, I didn't sit down to write this book. I tried to write another book about theology. And every time I tried to write that book, this is the question that I couldn't get around. And so it was like, once this idea came to me to write about Knight and Compline in this book, it was like, it was like this cat that just kept coming back to my house. I couldn't get rid of it. And so, um, I, felt like I, I just had to write this book. A- every other question that I was asking was a distraction from the actual thing I was dealing with, which is how do you, I don't know if I trust God. Um, and um, so to some extent, I mean, I had to write 70,000 words and then take, you know, edit it down to 50,000. Don't worry, the book's not 70,000 words, but I had to write that many and then and edit it over a year and a half before I could even really begin to answer that question. So I wouldn't actually give someone who's hurting my book, but I do think this is my answer. This is the best I got right now, um, is this book. And I, I, in general will say, um, so, you know, for real by the book, but in general, like, I think when people bring this question This is a real question. Like part of the part of the motivation for this book was um Barna did a study of younger folks who um were non believers that left had left the faith or or were not part of a faith. And their their number one or in the top reasons for them not believing in The Christian faith, it was, um, it's hard for them to buy that a good God could allow bad things to happen in the world. Um, and it was actually cited, it was one third of all folks, um, who responded said that was their reason for not believing. And that's higher percentage with Gen Z and millennials than they've ever seen before. So it seems like, um, this is becoming more of a question. Uh, which is interesting, right? In a in a world where we have you know more vaccines and we're safer and we have you know anti-lock It this has actually become more of a question, like a bigger question for younger folks. Um, yeah. But I'll say I think um, so. It's never an it's never a purely intellectual question, right? And I say this in the book is that like it, we have I think there there are sophisticated philosophical answers to this. And those are very helpful, very helpful. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, uh, but they're but incomplete. They're, recommend... they're, they're insufficient in and of themselves, I would say.
1: Right. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, um, what I say in the book is that um, this is a cry for things to be made right. I think at the end of the day, it's our soul's longing that we don't just want answers, we want action from a God that sets things right, that brings justice, that heals diseases, that binds wounds. We want the restoration of the world. We want things to be made better. And I think that that longing is right to have. And I think that we, to the extent that we try to save God's reputation, by giving pat answers or by saying it's not that bad or look at the bright side, we're actually extinguishing or, or, or trying to snuff out a longing for things to be made right in the world that is from God. And that is right. Um, So I think that we, we have to be honest about the brokenness in the world and about how, We need God to come and to set, to bind wounds, to, to mend what needs mending. Um, So I'm saying, I think it's more of a, um, almost a primordial cry for things to be made right that we all as humans share Mm -hmm. um, that this question comes out of. And I just want to affirm that like, that is the right response to darkness. Like that is a true response to the brokenness of the world. Um, Hmm. now I don't think it just ends there because I, I think God has responded to that cry, not perfectly. I mean, I, I make, and that's not the right word, not, not with like an easy answer or a complete answer. Um, I don't, I mean, God has responded perfectly because he is God, but, um, but I mean, um, I don't think that there, I think at the end of the day, enduring the brokenness in the world, the problem of evil is, is it's that it's enduring, Mm -hmm. it's enduring a mystery. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I talk a lot in the book about enduring a mystery, um, that phrase and, and what that means and how we do that um but i and the reason i think it's about enduring a mystery as opposed to finding an answer is i don't think that this can be answered until god himself sets things right i think that we're longing for a culmination of things that we will not fully be satisfied until we until we see God set things right. I mean, in some sense, the entire Christian story, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, is an answer, hmm. if there is an answer, to the problem of evil. The story of Jesus is the answer. Hmm. Now, that said, we, um, we have to sort of walk through that day by day. We're living out that story. And so I think um that in even in our frustration with god there's a hope there's a longing that this isn't it mm-hmm. this isn't the the evil that darkness doesn't have the last word that there is something else there's something to set things right there's something to you know m- make things um, the way we long for make as Bilbo Baggins said, I think like make all the sad things come untrue. And so, um, <laughs> I think, um, the whole story is a response to that. Um, but, but that we won't be, um, satisfied, um, until like, here's what I'm saying. The whole story is a response to this, mm-hmm. but there's no chapter and verse that you can give someone in scripture that tells people why their mother has cancer, right? Or why um, they they I don't know like had a horrible childhood, or why coronavirus right. exists, right? There's and so um, the church has known that. This is not a surprise to thousands of years of Christians, and they've let that chord in Scripture um, go unresolved. Mm-hmm. It's this tension. It's this unresolved chord in, like, in music. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying I think it is because only God Himself can sound the note that will resolve that chord, mm-hmm. and so we are still walking through creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so how do we endure that? How yeah. do we endure the longing? And, um, that's a lot of what my, my <laughs> book is about. How do we, how do we, how do we continue in faith yeah. when, um, there's not like a pat little answer that's going to put a little bow on this? Like, yeah. it's just, that's not going to happen. So, <laughs> so then why, why stay in? Why don't we leave it? Um, and that, yeah, so that's what my book's about. And
0: Anec- Anec- thank you for that. A- Anecdotally, I would affirm that Barnes' study. I think that that, the question of the, you know, problem of evil, theodicy, whatever you want to call it, which is related to do- the doctrine of hell and, and suffering and evil in the world and everything. I think, I yeah, I I wish, um, I think there is a need for the church to have a better, a better response to those questions which isn't a, a pat answer it, it i love the way you're not giving a, a answer in a sense like <laughs> here's the right you know it's it's entering into the story it's acknowledging the mystery it's embracing god um with some level of doubt and difficulty and, and, and not plastering over that. I mean, to be honest, to be vulnerable with you, I mean, you're a pastor, so maybe you can help me out here. I have a growing difficulty with two things in the Christian narrative. Number one are the pervasive number of passages that seem to Give promises of protection. God will not let your mm-hmm. foot slip if you're faithful. I mean, the Psalms are filled with them. People are people are so they love the Psalms. I I have a hard time with so many Psalms, not just the imprecatory ones. Psalm one thirty nine. You know, like, dash my enemies' right. babies up against the rocks and crush their faces. on the, you know, like that—that's problematic. As C.S. Lewis. Right, Put out and many others, but but, but the, p- but, the prom- but the promises of protection drive me crazy. Try- right,
1: like Psalm ninety one, that's all about you know, the pestilence will not come to your dwelling. It's like, well, how do we say that? How do we say that right now? You can't. I can't.
0: And all I can say as a theologian is, well, that's not really a promise. It's a cry. But it sure the the word will will not come to your It certainly <laughs> sounds like. I can't quote that without giving all kinds of caveats and explanations because people are like, Well, it sure as hell came to my door. Where, you know, like yeah. I don't know I don't know what to say. I have the same yeah. kind of struggle. Um, and the only answer I can come up with is a doctrine that I don't think is the best representation of scripture, and that's ultimate reconciliation. And I'm gonna get some e- emails for this be- well, I'm an I'm an annihilationist. I'm I'm not an annihilationist, I'm a Uh, interpreter of scripture who has recognized the pervasive evidence for annihilation in the Bible. (laughs) You and I might be in disagreement on that, but even that doesn't satisfy the only theological answer. I think that actually satisfies my soul is that in the end, God truly will reconcile and redeem and bring beauty out of all the evil and chaos in the world, which any kind of doctrine of irreversible punishment doesn't do. I, I don't know what to do with the 15 year old, Teenage girl in Saudi Arabia who happened to be born into Muslim, a Muslim Muslim family who meets a missionary on the streets and rejects the gospel because she doesn't you know what that is and then gets hit by a truck and I I don't have a soul satisfying answer that that good will come out of that unless in the end she will live forever with her creator I just but I don't see that taught as compelling in scripture as other doctrines of the end time, so. Can you pastor me through my struggles here?
1: you <laughs> gonna get me in trouble, Preston. <laughs> um, so, uh, okay. Um, I, we only we only have like five more minutes because I have to go get my son. But I um, go too. but yeah. uh, to
0: be continued. So in
1: like five minutes, let me <laughs> let me into this huge thing. I mean, I will say um, here, here's what we can affirm. Um, I, I think Jesus is a judge, um, he's a judge of hearts and, uh, and he, he, he judges evil, he judges evil in us. Um, and that's, we can affirm that and we can affirm that he wishes none to perish. Um, and, um, I think, well, I'll just be honest. I mean, I think, um, if, so my concept of hell, like to some extent, actually, I'll say this, the only time I, I tend to not, I say this in the book, but I tend to not connect with God as a judge. That's a hard concept for me. And I'm much more like, kind of like the hippie Jesus, like, like the chill <laughs> Jesus, like, the Austin Jesus. But, um, <laughs> Yeah, totally. But um uh but I encountered this really horrific um situation overseas where children were being um essentially held captive through the um adoption system. They were um folks that wanted to adopt them and they they were taking more and more money from them but never processing the papers to um get these kids ready for adoption. And so they were, they were just being, it was, a. they were using kids as bait. They were using kids to make money and it was evil. It's awful. It's, it's exploiting the weak and nothing was being done about it. And nothing has been done about it because, um, the authorities were being bribed in that situation. I realized no one is coming for these children. There's nothing to do. And my only hope was that, like, God saw and God would come as a judge, like that God would judge mm-hmm. and take care for the weak. Now, so I think because I I affirm kind of the, the creeds, mm-hmm. like I, I have to believe um, that there is um, – so that that we, we can, um, distance ourselves to go. I mean, I guess I'm talking about something about like hell, but when people hear, I'm like hesitant to use that word because people automatically think eternal conscious torment and a guy with like, you know, a pitchfork and fire, which is not at all what I mean. I mean that it's possible for us to remove ourselves from the goodness (laughs) of God that God himself is heaven, communion with God, unity with God is heaven. And that that's not compulsory or um, mandatory that God, uh, that we can, we can reject that and, and move away from that. Um, and so we make our own hell. So we diminish ourselves, right. From moving away from the source of life. Now that said, I think that that like, if, if there's a door in hell, it's only locked from the inside. Right. Um, that there is a sense that uh, anyone who longs for God and to know God, um, that that will not be thwarted even Mm. if you're a 14 year old Muslim girl. Mm. Right. That, um, and so I think Jesus is the source of all salvation period. Um, but, would I? So I'm absolutely ca- fine with saying there is judgment. I'm absolutely fine with saying we we can cut ourselves off from the grace of God, or we can we can reject the grace yeah. of God. We don't. It's not. It's not. God's a gentleman. He doesn't like force himself on us. And but I um. But I'm also will I will never say this individual is saved and this individual is damned. Like, I just think that that's in the wild mystery of God. I right. will not say that. Yeah. Um, so um, what does it mean that Jesus makes all things new? Yeah. Like, yeah. what does that mean? And that absolutely is our hope. I mean, I think you're right that at the end, you know, I saw someone um, talking about, like, basically, I don't believe in God because it, it was on Twitter because of this, like, horrible, um, you know, sad video of of a woman with dementia. And I thought, well, we have dementia either way, God right, or no God. Yeah. Like, there's horror in the world. <clears throat> what I have in Jesus is hope that the chaos and the destruction that is dementia. I don't Mm -hmm. mean people with dementia. I mean, dementia itself, the disease that that is Mm -hmm. will be judged and will be subdued and will be put to death under the power of Jesus. Mm -hmm. So, um, what does it mean that Jesus makes all things new? Does that open itself to a kind of annihilationism? I certainly think that it might. Mm I is, 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 is being annihilated part of judgment? Like it could be, it could, it could be that um, we, when we diminish ourselves by turning away from the grace of God, we, we get more more and more and more diminished um, so that we no longer exist. The question is though, and it's a valid question is, is there something truly eternal about the human soul that it, it Mm -hmm. continues that it it goes to greater and greater diminishment, but never snuffs out Mm. because the possibility of redemption is always there. Um, and just because the human soul is, um, is eternal. Um, now all of that, I have no idea. Like all (laughs) of that is shrouded in mystery and there's not scriptural. There's not like, at at utter scriptural clarity. So I didn't mean to talk about annihilationism here, but like, um, I'm, I'm, I'm open to that sort of idea. Um, with as long as we can stand and say that Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead. Um, because I think that's true. I mean, I, I affirm that I affirm that that's true.
0: Right. Yeah, no, it's sorry but to open up a huge can right now. You got to go. It also
1: makes all things new. Yeah. And it, I think what you're saying is that at the end of the day, that's all the hope we got. And I think that's true. I yeah. mean, the anything writing this book has made me come down on, if Christ is not risen from the dead, we really, really ought to be pitied above all men. Like, all my eggs are in that basket mm-hmm. now. Like, if that's not true... Mm-hmm then really there is almost no point to doing anything other than making your life as comfortable as possible Mm. while you're here. (laughs)
0: Right? (laughs) No, that's it. That's it. No, I, just, just, I mean, I should have given this caveat when I talked about my, you know, some problems to have a scripture or the Christian narrative. I, I don't need, I'm very okay having problems with their Christian narrative because I do believe that it is the best story that you can live. That doesn't mean I have to understand or even like every aspect of the story of all the alternatives. It is by far the best story. And My trust is in a God of grace, a God of judgment that he's going to work it out um, perfectly. And I 100% have trust that. Whether or not I understand the particulars, that's another issue. And I might, there's some particulars that seem to be revealed in scripture. I'm like, I don't feel that doesn't, I don't resonate with that. But what's my other option? The problem of evil isn't a uniquely Christian problem. It's a human problem, you know? So that's, I'm fine having disruption within the story that, that I I don't quite resonate with as much as other aspects of the story. It is the total, the total, it is the best story that we can live in, in my humble opinion. Um,
1: and I, I, also think, but there has to be room. What you're talking about in and, and my book goes into this is lament. I mean, yes. we, if you're going to be a Christian, yes. like yet, yeah, we just have to learn lament and yeah. lament is um, not just like I'm sad, although that's part of it. it it's holding God to God's own promises. It's mm-hmm. saying like, where are you? how long, Oh Lord. And I think we can come to God with really sharp words and be like, this doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. Where are you? What are you doing? Mm -hmm. And, um, I think scripture is, is really raw about, um, about struggles and doubts and, darkness is my only friend right in right. psalm 88 like what like what an intense way to end and psalm and that's, yeah. that's that's part of it right yeah. and so i think that the kind of stuff you're talking to about like struggling with god's own promises yeah. what so much of the christian life is is looking at the promises of god looking at the reality of our life and saying how can this be true because you promise this, because you promise Psalm 91, like how can coronavirus be true? How can this be true? Mm-hmm. And that's lament. That's saying, God, I am holding you to the, your own promises. Mm-hmm. And I think that we, one of the ways we endure the mystery of theodicy is by leaving room for grief around that and leaving room for lament around that. We don't stop yeah. there and then I, I go on in the book, but that's part of it. Mm-hmm. And we, if we miss that step, then I think we're going to inevitably have a thinner, like a, a, a less honest faith. Like it's going to be just like we are going to result in sort of saccharine answers because we can't wrestle with the real things that you're bringing up that, that, that scripture brings up. Like I think your average Christian church service in America, we're taught to be less honest with God yeah. than the scriptures themselves are. Um, wow. So, and the the very most common psalm, more common than the Psalm ninety one promises of, of things working out, is lament. It's the mo- It's forty really? percent of all psalms. Are lament, and so our, I think that posture of response, what you're ta- what you are feeling and talking about is lament. Mm-hmm. I think that is absolutely a Christian practice. Yeah. And you're not going to. Not, I'm not saying you particular, but we are not going to be able to endure in this faith, in our faith, if we don't take it up and learn it.
0: Tish, that's a great way to wrap up what I think is yeah. a super Sorry interesting conversation. Um, uh, Tish, you have a website, <laughs> tishharrisonwarren.com, dot uh, com. Two books, um, which I've already talked about, and it's in the show notes. So you got to run. Uh, your kids are probably. <laughs> <laughs> pounding at the door yeah my son. <laughs> thanks so much for being I on the show again baby. uh i really appreciate your work your ministry and i wish there were a hundred more um tish harrison warrens out there but well
1: Aww, we only have one i so. feel like we'd be friends i wish we lived closer i know
0: right oh, well. Yeah, yeah well let's uh yeah i'll have you on again when you write another book <laughs> <Or> before, <laughs> okay, well, before no i'm not gonna wait till you write soon. a book
1: eight years
0: (laughs) (laughs) all right take care